Yeah, before I read the scriptures, I just want to echo something that we just sang in that last song. It's true that you're not alone. It's important words for us to hold on to in this season when we are when we are physically distant from one another. And it reminds me of something that a friend of mine shared with me the other night uh, when we were in a texting chat, and uh, he had been on a phone call with the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curie, who had recently said, I want us to stop using this terminology of social distancing because it's not true. Um, It is true that we're physically distanced, that we're physically distant from one another as a practice of our love right now, but theologically that just isn't true. We're socially near one another because we are in Christ together. And so let's hold on to our theology, our belief in all that Jesus has done for us and practice social distancing as an act of love, but remember very deeply that God sees each and every one of us, that he is with us, that we are known by him, and that by and through the Holy Spirit, we are also bound to one another. We're lifted into God's presence, and this morning, lifted into the presence of one another. So with that in mind, let's read the scripture that's printed in the bulletin, um, a, a reading from Mark. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all become deserters, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John And he began to be distressed and agitated, and he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more, he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to say to him. Came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under guard. And so when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then they laid hands on him and arrested him. 
But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, though I, as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're in the fourth week of Lent, engaging in this unwanted and undesirable fast of physical distancing from one another. Um, And this morning, the text uh, actually takes us into a place of Jesus' own solitude, his experience of aloneness, of some growing physical distance between he and his disciples, and maybe even for him, social distancing. The text that we read is a familiar story. It's the story of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and of Judas's kiss of betrayal. And both of these remind us of Jesus' experience of being alone. And here he predicts that everyone will desert him. Peter, uh, in that prediction, is like he is so often obsessed with his own responses. Sometimes we are in that same kind of space. We can only imagine the best about ourselves. And Peter is like that. And he says, no, never I. And then Jesus famously says, well, in fact, three times you will actually uh, deny me. And then Jesus goes off into this space of prayer. And what I'd like to do this morning is really focus on the substance of Jesus' prayer and think about this with us this morning uh, as we worship. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John in sort of an inner circle, if you will, uh, to him to be near him as he prays and to engage them to stay awake and wait with him and to pray as well, I would assume. Um, And Mark wants us to know and understand that Jesus is distressed uh, and in deep anguish. And he uses, he goes to great lengths to sort of portray that. He throws himself on the ground in prayer and he begins to talk to God using this family word, Abba, Abba Father, Daddy or Papa. It's the very same word that Jesus invited the disciples to take up as they prayed to God, right? We pray our Father or our Abba who art in heaven. Jesus invites us to piggyback on his relationship with God, and here he speaks of his own intimate relationship with God. So I want you to think about something. This week, um, what were your prayers like? What what did you talk to God about uh, when you were in those moments of anxiety or quarantine where this new normal of quarantine is almost certainly distressing? You're reading news feeds, you're seeing about the spread of COVID-19, Most of us in these moments of reading the news or even texting a friend or not being able to hug or be near a friend or someone that we love dearly brings us into context in which we feel distress. I felt it this week, and I imagine that all of you that are listening and being a part of our worship service this morning felt it as well. And the thing that's so beautiful to me, uh, reading this prayer in the context of our own quarantine is that I recognize that Jesus felt the same kinds of things that I felt this week and that you felt this week. And he said the same kind of things that we probably said to God this week. Take this virus away. Lift the quarantine. 
take this hour away, and all of the iterations of that. The first part of Jesus' prayer here is most familiar to us because whenever we hit or stumble into or come upon circumstances that provoke fear or anxiety or struggle or uncertainty of any type, we almost certainly tell God, is there another way? Please let there be another way. I said those words this week, and I imagine you said them as well. And the beauty of these words is that we see the substance of Jesus' humanity, that in his humanity, he is absolutely in solidarity with human beings who suffer with us as we suffer. Abba, is there another way forward than this hour? Jesus felt the kind of things that we feel. Now, here, Jesus uses the language Uh, He speaks of a cup, right? He calls his coming sufferings uh, and his cross a cup that he will drink. Now, last week, uh, Chris talked about the cup, right? If you remember back to that great moment in the upper room when Jesus gives us the communion or Eucharist, Chris talked to us about that particular cup, the cup of blessing, the cup of the new covenant in Jesus's blood that called and invited his disciples to remember that they are anchored in their life with God because of the faithfulness of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is telling them, you belong. You belong to all that God is doing and making and bringing about this new creation, the coming of his kingdom. You belong to this reality, Jesus invites them, so that with every sip of wine that they would take that night, they're meant to remember that though they may not in the future be physically present with the Lord, they are spiritually lifted into his very presence. And as we commune, usually week after week in one another's presence, we remember the same truth. And even this morning, we remember that we are partakers of the the cup of God's blessing. We belong to Jesus and we belong to one another, even during a pandemic. But this cup that Jesus has in mind here is related to that cup, but it's also very different from that cup. Within Israel's scriptures, Jesus is almost certainly calling to mind the many places in the Psalms or the prophets in particular that speak of God's hatred of all that is wrong in our world. And they tag those, all of those instances to this notion of the cup of God's wrath. Now, whenever we talk about wrath, it's a challenging thing for us to sort of think about God being wrathful. But the cup of God's wrath was the prophetic way of talking about God's holy intention to rid creation and our world and our lives and our relationships, our cities, our environment, and even our bodies of all that is wrong and could go wrong. God hates the brokenness that you and I experience in this life. His wrath, his anger is mobilized for justice and against injustice, for life and against every form of death, for health and against every form of disease. Jesus saw his own coming experience of death as a way in which he would enter the full weight of God's deepest intention to rid the world of all things that are wrong and to put all things right. Part of the anguish for Jesus in that moment of prayer, when he feels so anguished that he's throwing himself on the ground, asking that this cup would pass, is that Jesus's life had only ever been a life of love expressed toward God and toward neighbor. 
There was never a moment in his life in which ego got the best of him the way it gets the best of us or in which selfishness sort of surfaces in his life and he's self-promoting in the wrong sort of way. There's never a part of his story in which he in any active or, or, or even passive way contributes to the wrong that is in our world. And yet in death, Jesus intends to drink into his own story all that is wrong in the human experience so that in his resurrection we are gifted with the cup of blessing and new creation itself. Jesus is in distress and he asks as we ask, can it pass? Can we not suffer to get the cup of blessing? But notice how the prayer pivots from this moment of just honest sort of um, display of his own emotion, his own frustrations, his own fears, his own anxiety even, to this moment of abandonment to the desire for all that God is doing in the world to right wrong through the story of Jesus who would suffer. Jesus says, yet not what I want, but what you want. Again, he's echoing some of the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray and that we pray weekly, actually, um, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a moment in which we acknowledge that we live in this moment in the world in which his kingdom often feels and is sort of absent. Places where his will is not done, places where wholeness is not to be found. And so in prayer, we abandon ourselves to God's plan and his desire to put all right we align ourselves with his intention and with his will. And that's what Jesus does here. He abandons himself to God's desire to bring his kingdom through his own death. Even though I think it's fair to say that he almost certainly didn't feel the truth of this in his own body or his emotions. I think that's an important thing for us to say in a time like this because we can sometimes feel ashamed or guilty if we feel fear or we feel feelings of anxiety. And yet Jesus felt those same things as he anticipated his own suffering unto death, his own cross. We feel these things perhaps now in our own context and spaces of physical distance. One final observation. The disciples, what are they doing in this time? Well, they're not staying awake, right? They fall asleep, right? And they do this consistently, three times in fact. Uh, the disciples fall asleep while Jesus is praying in agony. And each time he comes back and he asks them if they could stay awake. Could you not stay awake with me, Peter, for this one moment? And he urges them to pray and he reminds them that they themselves are participants in the same tensions that are ongoing in his own life and his own body. Because he says the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Almost certainly he's talking about the Holy Spirit within us who fills us and gives us new agents to cry out to Abba, our Father, to remember our solidarity with God, our participation in all that God has done and our life together, even though we're physically distant from one another. But our flesh is weak. We get bogged down. We struggle to rise above our emotional response and even our physical response here. We fall asleep. Stay awake and pray. And I think here it's fair to say that Jesus is once again echoing the prayer that he gave us to pray, lead us not into temptation, or rather, lead us not into the time of trial, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
I find it hard to talk to God sometimes, and particularly in hard moments. But Jesus' prayer here encourages me to be a person who cries out to Abba and is honest about my emotional response, about the things that I feel. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. I find it hard to take the pivot that Jesus did here. I find it really hard sometimes to say, thy will be done, yet thy will be done, because his will feels foggy to me sometimes. And I so want other realities to happen in the course of my own life, and you do as well. But what Jesus is inviting us to do through the modeling of his own prayer is that we would similarly abandon ourselves to God's good intention to put the world right and to know that because of his faithfulness, we belong. This week, some of you felt really lonely. I'm certain of it. One in five Americans are now in a shelter-in-place situation or circumstance. Philly is almost certainly soon to follow suit. And we need to be honest about that. And we need to be honest that we don't like that. I don't know if you read the columnist David Brooks column this past week. He had some colorful language for the virus. Go back and read it. Um, It's hard to live in isolation. It's hard to live in the presence of the unknown. It's hard to live with a timeline that keeps moving from one week to another week to another week. Some of you felt afraid this week because you're a part of the vulnerable populations that are most at risk. I am, by the way. I have asthma and have had it all my life, and so I'm very conscious of these things palpably. We read our news feeds. We read about the growth of the exponential curve. We read about hospitals and their overcrowding or potential overcrowding, the lack of ventilators, the lack of protective equipment for those in the medical professions. We read about the volatility of the financial markets. Maybe you checked in on your 401k or 403b or retirement fund of some sort. All of these are disruptive realities to life as we know it. And they're scary. I feel it. You feel it. And the encouraging thing about this prayer is I remember that Jesus feels it too. He gets us. He understands us. And so amidst all of these stories of COVID-19 or other tragedies or other difficulties that are happening in the world, because they haven't stopped, by the way, there is this story of Jesus in the garden who in such a beautiful and self-giving act of love pivoted and said, thy will be done on earth as in heaven, even though that includes my suffering. And even when his disciples fell asleep, Jesus kept praying that same prayer. Because what he wanted more than anything was to drink the cup of blessing with his family and new creation and to remind us and remind them that we belong, body and soul, to the one who loves us. I want to close with the Heidelberg Catechism. We recite this often in context when we suffer, but it's the first question of that beautiful statement of theology that is so worth our remembering this morning. And the first question is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins by his precious blood and has has set me free from the tyranny of the devil 
He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Christians throughout the centuries have leaned into a story like that or an answer like that as their only hope in life and in death. And by that hope, they have lived very different lives in the midst of difficulty and struggle. They have lived as sons and daughters of God, beloved and so loving. May God give us grace to hold this truth truly and deeply in this moment of our own struggle. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.